This podcast is brought to you by the University of Pretoria, a world of answers. I'm Aubrey Masango, and you're listening to a World of Answers podcast. The series will be unpacking some of the most pertinent issues facing South Africa at the moment. We'll look at how society has evolved and where that puts traditional thought in the future. In this episode, we touch on two of possibly the most contentious topics in our society. We ask if transformation in universities goes beyond race and is gender dead. I'm joined by Dr. Stimbi Lembete, who is a political studies lecturer at the University of Pretoria, and together we unpack some of these issues. Dr. Stimbi Lembete, welcome to you. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So we are in the throes of a conversation in South Africa as to where do we imagine ourselves mm. in that ideal future. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways we are trying to get there is through a concept called transformation. Mm-hmm. I'm interested to find out from you, what are we talking about generally when we speak of transformation? And I'll... And I'll well, I think that's a big question and there's a, there's a lot that can be uh, thought of or unpacked from there. But I think if you, if you start with this kind of de- dictionary definition of what transformation is, which is a, a, a marked or noticeable change in the form or the nature or the appearance of something, um, and we think of South Africa's history and what the imperative really in 1994 was for the government that came in is to fundamentally change the nature and the structure of South African uh, society and economy and South African politics. And what that means is that shifting uh, the South African society from one that was based on um, a particular race-based and gender-based exclusion uh, of the vast majority of the population to one that is inclusive of all people in the population and that allows for um, everyone in South Africa to have the same uh, opportunities and chances to get into uh, different positions, but also that changes, I think, the the values and the principles on which our society operates. Um, and I think that what the results of the of the of the employment equity data show us is that we've gone to, we haven't gone far enough. Firstly, in the transformation um, at a surface level, right, of having, of who is in particular positions, particularly at a senior level. But I don't think we've even touched uh, transformation at a structural level. So what are the values and the principles and the logics on which our society operates? Uh, And so we still have a lot to do in that regard. So as much as we are looking at uh, various levels at which this transformatory process needs to take place, you are saying to me that it has to happen uh, at the cosmetic level. In other words, we need to see more black people where there were less black people. We need to see women where there have been less women in that um, sort of space. How does that bring about transformation? Well, the way in which that 
level of of of, of change uh, is understood to bring about transformation is that when you have people with different life experiences, but also people that represent the demographics of the country, that you should have a different set of, of, of a logics and a different set of principles that then define decision making, right? So if you have someone who was raised in a township whose mother was a domestic worker um, and whose father was a laborer uh, of some kind, that the lived experience that that person has had will make them look at the decisions that a business has to make, that a university has to make differently from someone that has not had that experience. And also that if you have people that represent the uh, demographic majority of the country, that those people should then make decisions that are in the interests of or that represent the demographic majority of the country as well. Of course, what we know is that it doesn't always work that way. And that just changing the color or the, or the sex of the people that are in particular positions doesn't mean that those people are going to act very differently to the people that occupied those positions before them. And that's where it then becomes important to have a more fundamental conversation about transformation, about how do we think about what is uh, most important, how do we make decisions about what is valuable, um, and have we changed the way that we think of that um, in, in, in our business decisions or in our decisions in a university or in a government. Um, but I don't think that you can have that conversation without having the conversation about what we have been calling here the sort of superficial transformation of who occupies positions, because it is infinitely harder to have that conversation in a room full of white men than in a room that represents uh, the demographic realities of South Africa. The narrative around transformation in this country has largely been dominated precisely by the um, need to change the demographics, uh, to have a slightly more representative, uh, cosmetic, uh, transformatory reality than we have. So it has largely been about race. Mm. I get a sense that we haven't spoken enough about the transformation that is required at the gender level, at the sex level. Um, and I make a, a fundamental distinction between gender and sex, and we'll get into mm. the reason why I'm doing so in a few moments' time. Comment on that. Do you think that the race transformatory conversation has been more dominant than the gender stroke sex transformatory conversation in this country? I think that, you know, certainly a lot of the feminist movement or the women's movement that you saw sweep the globe uh, in all sorts of other parts of the world um, in the 1960s and the 1970s skipped South Africa in many ways because uh, of the liberation struggle and the idea was that we needed to fight the struggle for, for liberation from race-based oppression. And then we can deal with, um, with issues of oppression around gender. But that approach to things did not take cognizance of, of the concept or the idea that we've now come to call intersectionality. But that's basically the notion that um, all forms of oppression intersect and they interact with each other in a way that 
means that people can be oppressed or liberated on a number of different levels and you can't deal with one to the exclusion of the other. You need to understand these things holistically so that people are the bearers. People are, as individuals are incredibly complex and people as individuals contain within them multiple contextual and fluid uh, identities. So, for example, the reality of a black woman in South Africa isn't just shaped by her being a black African, isn't just shaped by her being a woman, is also those those realities of her being black African and being a woman intersect and interact with each other in particular ways that lead to uh, the opportunities and the limitations that she faces within her society. Those those identities also intersect with the reality of her class position. So if she is working class or middle class or um, up class or even her chances of becoming middle class will be shaped by the reality that she is a black African woman. And so we don't think about this thinking of transformation only as race or only as gender um, avoids us from having the real complex conversation that we should be having about how to achieve true transformation. If, and it seems you agree that perhaps the race-based struggle for transformation has had a more dominant space in the South African narrative at least, if we haven't even started to scratch the race-based transformatory conversation adequate and the gender-based transformatory conversation with the complexities of intersectionality that you've just described has not yet um, received the the space and attention that it deserves in the reimagining of a South Africa that is truly transformed. How do we bridge those two areas mm. in an authentic way, in a way that addresses the race-based issues mm. properly, uh, but also uh, uh, addresses the issues of gender-based um, transformatory conversations, including the intersectional um, the complexities that you've just described now. How do we do that? How do we get to a place where we actually get to talking about the structural issues of transformation that are not being discussed at the moment in the current narrative? Well, for one thing, what we need to do is that we need to shift the conversation from being a conversation about numbers. Because the conversation is really a conversation about values and principles and cultures that still dominate uh, the different organizations and the different structures that that shape our society. So, for example, um, one of the big celebrations that we had at the University of Pretoria in this uh, month of August was um, about how much progress has been made in terms of the number of female academics um, and female researchers working at the University of Pretoria. So 53% of the total um, 8,900 researchers working at the University of Pretoria are women. And of that total number of 8,900, about 2,500 of those are black 
women researchers. So that's like 29% of that number is black women researchers. And that's amazing, right? That is, um, that seems to fall right in line with the, um, with the targets that have been put in place by the Department of Higher Education and Training for the transformation of the university sector uh, in terms of both race and gender. But as Vice Chancellor Kupep has said, is that these numbers can actually be misleading. Because if you look at the seniority of those researchers, uh, at the kind of responsibility that they have within the university, uh, that those researchers, that 29% of black women researchers, is still pretty junior. And so we need to have a deeper conversation about what are the impediments within the university structure that are preventing black women from growing in, uh, in sen- into senior positions as researchers at the university yeah. and becoming professors and associate professors. Um, and so how do we then change things to... Uh, to advance on the progress that has been made to make sure that in the next uh, five, ten years uh, and even shorter, we have black women in decision-making positions. So but if we don't look at the numbers, yeah, if we don't have that mechanical approach to the transformation agenda, in other words, how many women do we have, how many... How many uh, men of color do we have? How many women of color do we have? All of those kinds of things that are determined by looking at the numbers. How do we even start the conversation on the deeper, nuanced, value-based conversations? I think the thing is that we we can start with the numbers, yeah. but we mustn't end with the numbers. Okay. That we can start with the numbers, with the conversation, but then we need to go deeper. And I think a lot of what um, the resistance has been in South Africa over the past 25 years is there's been a resistance to going beyond the numbers yes. and saying, okay, fine, if all of this is achieved, how do we build on it and how do we have a fundamental change? Because ultimately, when we think of a transformed society, what we want is that we want institutions, whether they are universities, whether they are um, corporations, that not only reflect the the demographics of the country in numbers, but that also reflect the culture, the values of the majority of the country, whether that is men, whether that is whether that is um, majority in terms of race, but also that's the majority in terms of in terms of sex, right? Women make up fifty two percent of the South African population. Women make up fifty five percent of South African voters. But you would never think so if you look at the composition of our parliament or if you look at the composition of our party leaders or if you look at the nature of their policy right? Um, if women really were at the center of decision making, then we would have no schools without flushing toilets um, because sanitation is really important sure. to the lives of, of women, right? And particularly if you think that the young girls start menstruating at about 10, 12 years old, you know, you need to have proper sa- sanitary facilities um, for that. We've had the whole conversation on sanitary pads. If there were women at the center of decision making in corporations and at universities, you wouldn't have the kind of gender pay gap that we see. You wouldn't have the reality that at the University of Pretoria, for example, there is no daycare center at the university. So if you are a woman academic with a young child, you need to make other arrangements um, to for childcare for that child because there's nothing at the university that provides that for you.
You are listening to a World of Answers podcast. The University of Pretoria can help you achieve your true potential. As a UP graduate, you are invited to join the university's prestigious alumni network. Download the new UP Alumni Network app, which is designed to help you expand your network, advance your career, and gain access to exclusive opportunities. You can also stay in touch with fellow alumni and be part of a community of changemakers. Search for Graduate Community on Google Play or the App Store and let your degree take you further. University of Pretoria, discover a world of answers. Visit up.co.za. You are listening to a World of Answers podcast. What, in your opinion, would be the next question to be asked that brings us closer to or that makes us move further and further away from the numbers game, right? That brings us closer to a more substantial, essential conversation about um, about transformation. And I would like to hear your views more specifically around the naturally or whether it's a social construct. Mm-hmm. Uh, and how does that uh, compare to the concept of sex and therefore how we should be talking about gender in the transformatory context? Well, look, I've been using sex in this in this conversation um, to denote um, male and female uh, in terms of in, in the biological, the physiological sense. Um, but even that is more complex than Indeed. than than I've been using it, right? Because um, the ways in which we describe um, or the ways in which we commonly understand what a male, what the male sex is, what the female sex is, um, are very simplified versions of a complicated reality. But nevertheless, in this case, I'm using sex to describe male and female in physiological or biological ways. Um, But then the notion of gender is, I think, socially constructed. And it is basically a social construction of femininity and masculinity that are uh, imposed on the different sexes. So... um, Ideas about what it is to be a male person uh, and so what it is to be a man. What does that mean about how you act in the world, what roles you play, uh, what jobs you can take, what clothes you can wear, etc. And the same goes for 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 females. So women um, are particular kinds of people, they dress in a certain way, they undertake certain activities. And over time, historically, uh, the masculine has been uh, associated with uh, with leadership, with strength, with the public realm, where the feminine has been associated with uh, with weakness, with nurturing, and with the private realm and the big uh, battle that uh, that that women fighting for women's rights have been fighting for is to say that actually we're human uh, we're human just like men are and so we want to be able to have the same opportunities uh, an equality of opportunity as as men but also we want to be able to engage in the public realm 
just like we are expected to engage in the private realm, and we'd like men to be engaged in the private realm, just like they are engaged in the public realm, so that everyone has got the same ability or um, equal abilities to be whoever they would want to be in the world. And so we would like society to not stop people uh, one way or the other. And the gender conversation has also in recent years uh, become, I suppose, more nuanced in thinking about um, the different, that gender is fluid, right? That this idea that there is, uh, there are just two extremes of man and woman or of masculine and feminine um, actually isn't the reality of many people's lives in the world. Uh, That many people identify uh, with a little bit of both male and, uh, of both um, the masculine and the feminine um, and can identify one way or the other regardless of what their physiology is, regardless of what they say So someone can be born physiologically a male, um, but uh, identify far more with the gender of being a female and vice versa. And that fluidity is something that we need to uh, acknowledge. And I think an important thing is that this isn't new, right? That this is often we speak about this as if, oh, it's these new faddy things that are happening with the millennials in the 21st century. And that's the woke And that's nonsense, right? That there are cultures throughout the world, including um, in the African continent, that have acknowledged that people will have fluid identities as far as gender is concerned. And it's a particular version of uh, of, of the dominant Western culture that has come to dominate um, societies throughout the world that has made the distinction between man and woman and male and female as uh, as 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 concretely as it has. Clearly, the project for transformation is also slightly encumbered by language. Are we developing the language that will adequately deal with the demands for the kinds of transformation that we're looking for? Well, you know, what's so interesting is that in many indigenous cultures throughout the world, So in places that were colonized by Europeans, those places had very complex notions of gender that still remain in language, right? So um, the research has shown, for example, that in different um, Native American cultures, um, there would be uh, that there were... So all Native American societies acknowledge like three to five different gender roles that were linked to the idea that they were uh, that people um, had uh, two spirits. And so there would be a female and a male, but then there were also two-spirit females, two-spirit males, and they were transgendered people in their language. So they had the linguistic um, complexity complexity to describe uh, this reality. Um, You see similar things um, in some Polynesian societies and different African societies as well. So the linguistic simplicity actually exists in English, um, which is the language that we're 
communicating in now. Um, but it, but the complexity has existed in different languages over time. So it's not that this is a new, it may be a new fad in the English spoken language, perhaps. Um, but it certainly isn't, uh, in, in, in other cultures and in other societies. Universities such as yours, the University of Pretoria, are supposed to be platforms for the interrogation of these concepts, the research of knowledge, the creation of curricula, to be able to, I suppose, deal with the new world. And I would imagine that the new world that you and I are talking about is a transformed new world. Are universities equipped for this new world? Are the curricula that are that are available at universities sufficient for the new world just in terms of the way that they are structured? Are movements such as the Fees Must Fall movement a part of that transformatory process? And do they, for example, have the right language? Are all of these institutions, which sometimes look like they are at loggerheads, are they ready for the new transformed world? And are they being catalysts towards that? Well, I think certainly uh, the uh, one of the things that I love about working at a university is all the young people um, that are coming in and that challenge the structures and the norms uh, that we have in the society and in our society broadly, but in the way that we operate uh, our university. So certainly when I arrived at the University of Pretoria in 2013, for example, with residence culture, was incredibly um sexist and gendered in many ways. I mean, there were girls' races where you needed to, women's races where you needed to wear certain clothes and, you know, wear makeup and earrings and all sorts of that kind of thing. Um, and that has changed and that has profoundly shifted uh, in the past six years, but there's still uh, issues around different rules and different ways of operating in the men's and the women's races that are being challenged by students today. We saw with Fees Must Fall uh, that there was a big challenge from students amongst themselves uh, about the particularly masculine ways in which uh, the in which protest and in which engagement was happening uh, within Freezmas Fall and the exclusion of um, of other genders from the discussion um, and from uh, and from the mobilisation that was happening within Freezmas Fall and there was a um, and academic spaces like the University of Pretoria have a really big role in guiding and having those conversations, but also creating the space for those conversations to happen. And these conversations are necessarily uncomfortable, right? So we've got um, at the University of Pretoria, yeah. there's the Center for Sexualities, AIDS and Gender um, that is active in generating these kinds of conversations at the university. But we're also having to be very conscious of it as academics in terms of our curricula. Uh, what, so at one level, it is, um, you know, how many women do you have in your uh, syllabus, how many uh, black women are you teaching? So there's a bit of a numbers view of it. But there's also one about looking at the content and saying, what worldview, what view of the world does this literature perpetuate or does it change? Um, and what kind of debate can we generate? There's a view that universities, and maybe more generally that the academic world, the world of academia, is insulated from the realities of the lived world, that it is a world of theory. 
a, a world of of cerebral indulgence, right? And that it is made up of people that don't have any touch with reality and that they are expected to be the ones that lead society in thought, in the articulation of issues, and that universities are simply f- too far removed from um, from the communities that they emerge from that they are supposed to serve. What are your thoughts about that? So I've got two parts of a response to that. The first is that many of the, the ideas that we treat as common sense today and many of the people that make that criticism of universities, the ideas that we treat as common sense were thought up by people that were in ivory towers or where people thought, well, this person doesn't do anything except think about the world all day. Um, you know, so even the very basic ideas of, 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 of separation of, um, of church and state or separation, you know, capitalist thinking about how, uh, the, the, the free market or how profit operates, um, or how business should operate. Those ideas came from people who thought about these things all day, every day, right? They came from philosophers and thinkers, um, whether those philosophers and thinkers were based in universities or not. And so that activity has always been a part of um, of shaping the world. And that activity always looks like pie-in-the-sky ivory tower thinking when it first emerges. And it is, and it eventually seeps into the fabric of society um, and informs the ideas uh, of everyday society. So all of the ideas that we have that drive our common sense didn't, aren't just common sense that emerged from the sky. Sure. They came from people thinking about it, these it, it, things. It, it, but then the second yeah. thing I think that we need to think about is that in reality, I think that universities need to adapt the way in which they operate um, for the realities of the 21st century. Uh, that the idea that you could just be a philosopher thinking of things and leaving them um, and then they'll get picked up by the society in a few years or a few hundred years, that can't happen anymore. That universities need to be and academics need to be a lot more active and deliberate in the way that they engage with the broader society and the way in which they have their ideas tested. Uh, And I think that all universities are strongly aware of that. And I think that we're seeing a much greater engagement by academics with society uh, in order to reduce the distance uh, between between the ivory tower of the university um, and the society. And I think that that needs to be a reciprocal relationship. It's not only academics uh, taking their ideas down to society, so to think, but it's also academics academics listening to um, to society and amending and thinking um, and changing some of their thought according to the realities uh, that exist. Dr. Stimbi Limbeta, I really appreciate you talking to me uh, this morning and I really appreciate the way that you've uh, expounded on some of the concepts that we've discussed and I hope that uh, people will get value out of this conversation. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This podcast was brought to you by the University of Pretoria, a world of answers. We find answers. If the path ends, we start a new one. If there's no tool, we create one. If there's no formula, we write one. 
This is how we became one of Africa's top universities and one of the leading universities in the world. It's how we produce socially impactful research to find solutions for the world's most pressing issues. We help graduates become responsible citizens using innovation to prepare them for tomorrow. University of Pretoria. Discover a world of answers. Visit up.ac.za.